let the kids go. Um, we will pray for them as we have been doing here in the last little bit. But I also thought I'd like to say something in, in, in light of that tragedy in Saskatchewan. I typically don't bring up the news events, but that is so close to home in so many different ways. Um, there's, there's individuals from Lethbridge, Olds, Airdrie, I think Edmonton. Um, I mean, just the fact the hockey world is such a ma major fabric of our Canadian culture. Um, just a horrible, horrible thing. Tyler mentioned that he knows the chaplain of the team. Um, we need to be praying for, for all those involved. And so I'd like to pray for, for the families, for the, those who are recovering, um, and all the respondents. And then at the end, I will close uh, with a prayer for our children. Because that just hits home, doesn't it? Um, but let's pray. Lord, I, I think each of us, as we heard the news, read the news, saw pictures, our hearts were overcome with, um, with sorrow. We pray for the, the families of uh, those who, who passed away. We ask that you give them peace and strength and courage in the midst of something that is far more than they can bear. Father, we pray for those who were responded on the scene, who probably saw things they never want to see. Pray for the, the medical staff, I think in Saskatoon, as they had to respond and have images in their mind that uh, will be with them forever. Father, we pray for those who survived, those who were in hospital healing, and those who walked away. They, too, will struggle. And we ask that, we don't understand why, but, Father, we do ask that in, in your grace and your, and your compassion that you would use this for your glory and for your good, that you would draw men and women to yourself. And, Father, we stop to think of even our kids as we send our little ones downstairs uh, to, to, to not only play but to, to learn about you Father we pray for their physical safety and, and even bigger than that we pray Father for their spiritual safety I pray by your grace and your kindness that you would You would allow each of our children not only to know and love you, but to be known by you. May you be their first and best of beings, their greatest love. And Lord, give us the wisdom and the knowledge to know how to train them in the ways of you. We love you, Lord, and in a solemn occasion, may we now look, look to you. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Kids are dismissed. Uh, hopefully someone's going with you. Good thing it's not me.
Just quick announcement before we dive into the text. Um, remember, first of all, thank you for the last last weekend. Friday was a good good day. Saturday, uh, Sunday was a really good day. It just this place was full. It was kind of fun, and uh, I think we were a blessing to the other congregation, and I know they were a blessing to me. Um, but remember, thinking ahead, no family groups this week, but there is a family vision night on Wednesday night here at the church in the basement. Uh, we're going to be looking at, if this is your church home, uh, if you could be here, that would be really important as we look ahead to where we're headed, where we're going. I'm going to pray. I want to hear, hear, hear from you as well. But that is uh, Wednesday night, 6.30 is uh, potluck, 7 o'clock, we'll start that meeting. 1 Samuel chapter 20. We're going to read all 42 verses. Again, another long one. But uh, as we're going through these 42 verses, just remember, initially I was going to connect it two weeks ago with chapter 19. So it's going to be a really short message in light of that. 1 Samuel chapter 20. All 42 verses. Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without discussing it, disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is a new moon, and I, I should not fail to sit at the table with the king, but let me go that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says, good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself. For why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you, if I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow, or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and, and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you, as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. 
And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed, because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand, and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy saying, Go find the arrows. If I say to the boy, Look, the arrows are on the side of you. Take them. Then you are to come. For as the Lord lives, it is safe for you, and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, Look, the arrows are beyond you, then go. For the Lord has sent you away. And as a matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat. The king sat on his seat, at, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered, Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, Let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city. And my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David, and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, Run and find the arrows that I shoot. And as the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? Jonathan called after the boy, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master, but the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan David and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. As soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap, and he fell on his face to the ground, and he bowed three times, and then they kissed one another, and they wept with one another, David weeping the most. And Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you. 
between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Lord, these are your words. We ask that your spirit would teach us. In your name we pray. Amen. First Samuel chapter 20. You know that as we dig through 1 Samuel, the scriptures tell us that these words are more desired, to be more desired than gold. They're precious. And if somebody who you trusted said, you know what, there's gold in them, their hills, you would go to them, their hills, and you'd start digging. And, and and they said, okay, it's going to be right in this vicinity. If, if you just simply took a rake and scratched the surface and no, no gold, uh, we would all think you'd be foolish if you just walked away. But I, but I think we do that so often with the Word of God. We We quickly read it or we don't read it. But we don't dig into it. We don't stop and, 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 and dwell on it and think about it. We don't, uh, we don't mine for those nuggets of gold. And, and I just want to, just before I dive into this text, I just want to encourage us as a church family, read the book. And read it often. And dig into it. On your own. On your own. We live in a world which I'm thankful for. We have podcasts, and we have, uh, I mean, we got all kinds of, we, we, can, we can spend 24-7 listening to good stuff. But there is no substitute for putting the good stuff on the shelf at times on a regular basis and digging for the gold ourselves. And, 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 and I say that because as I dug through this text this week, there's nuggets in here of rich gold. And I hope that as we, as, we, as we discover this together, that you're discovering it as well. And that you're telling me what, what you're learning and what God is showing you. Sorry, sometimes I've got to get into that kind of like preaching mode. and I just, I just want to encourage you in this book. 1 Samuel chapter 20. I'm going to divide it into two sections. And, and the reason why I'm going to divide it into two sections is because I, well, there's probably other ways you can do it, but kind of verses 1 through 23 you've got this conversation between David and Jonathan and then they separate in verse 23. And at the end of verse 42 they separate again. And so there's, there's kind of two distinct conversations that are happening. But did you notice in verse 23 and in verse 24, there's a similar phrase. Verse 23. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between me, you and me forever. Then in verse 42, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And I, and I think the author, and I think Jonathan, is trying to, to highlight something for us here. And so there's two sections. The first section I'm going to simply title The Promise Appealed To. And the second section I'm going to, I'm going to title it 
the promise applied. Okay, the promise appealed to, verses 1 through 23. And, and as we begin to wrestle, notice in verses 1 through 11, we have this safe place. Now, as you're reading God's Word, take a note of the action words. Notice, then David, with his cap on his back and his flip-flops, what does he do? He's, he meanders into town. No, he fled. But where's he fled from? That's bad English, I know. He fledded from Naoth in Ramah. He was with Samuel, remember? And when he was with Samuel, remember Saul sends one military group and they're rendered ineffective. They're prophesying. Sends a second one and the third one. And finally Saul says, I, I got to do it myself. And he goes and he's lying naked, completely embarrassing himself, prophesying out of control, completely out of control, and in complete embarrassment. That's the point of the text. God is protecting David in the presence of Samuel. So why is David fleeing now from Samuel and running to Jonathan? It doesn't make sense to me. Until you come to verse 8. Take a look at verse 8. This is what David says, Therefore deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. Why is he running why is he running to Jonathan? Because he's running to the promise. He's running to the covenant. He's running to the steadfast love that Jonathan, back in chapter 18, promised David. And remember, Jonathan's the superior, probably older. Jonathan is the one who's supposed to get the kingdom, but God has said something different. Jonathan makes a, a promise, a, a covenant, a commitment to David. And now David in this moment is running to Jonathan, the one who has made a promise. And did you notice that this text is filled with all kinds of emotion? It's not that jo David runs to Jonathan and goes, Hey, what have I done? He says, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father? He's pleading with Jonathan. What have I done? Why is your dad trying to kill me? Not only did he try to get me out of bed, but he went after me in Saul's court. He threw the spear at me after he promised you that he wasn't going to kill me. He told you and the servants to kill me. Earlier he had thrown the spear at him twice. What have I done? And Jonathan's response, quite frankly, is puzzling. Dad's not trying to kill you. Where, where in the world did you get that idea from? You kind of wonder, where have you been, Jonathan? Now, we know in chapter 19, Saul tells Jonathan, no, I won't. You're right. So maybe... Maybe Jonathan got that, believed his dad, and went, went on a vacation. I don't know. 
But there seems to be a naiveness to Jonathan in this text. And it seems like David is trying to convince Jonathan and wisely trying to set up a story, a stage to show Jonathan that, yeah, your dad really is trying to kill me. You know, I think sometimes when it comes to the enemy, I've been just as guilty of being that naive. There's a sense like, yeah, I know the scriptures talk about a devil, and he's 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 a lion that's seeking to devour. I know that's what the text says, but I don't really think he's after me. I know that the 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 spirit of the age, the philosophies of this world. I know that they're contrary and antagonistic to the gospel but but often i'm naive to its power and its strength and its desire to 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 destroy you and me i think i see jonathan i see see myself in jonathan remember last two weeks ago we talked about how we are sheep that have been sent into the wolves sheep are helpless and dumb I don't know if it was so much a a kind thing that Jesus was saying when he said that. I think he was trying to not alarm us so much as awaken us. And say, get on your knees, open your book, fight the battle with the power of the Lord and the strength of the Lord. David runs to the promise He's awakening Jonathan to the danger. And then he he pleads with Jonathan. Therefore, verse 8, deal kindly with your servant. For you, you, it was you, Jonathan. You have brought your servant into a covenant. You made a vow. You made a promise. But not just any covenant, a covenant of the Lord. In other words, the Lord oversaw it. The The Lord was part of it. In fact, this is, this is a covenant that comes from the Lord. You see, Jonathan was a man of faith. It's interesting when we get to verses 12 and on, uh, Jonathan is doing most of the speaking, and some 13 times he mentions Yahweh's name, Lord. L-O-R-D, all capitals. Jonathan's a man of faith. We saw that in chapter 14. In chapter 18, he makes a covenant. He gives his robe. He gives a sword to David because I believe he understood that David would be the king. And we're going to see it here in this chapter very clearly. Jonathan makes a covenant, a promise to David. David runs to that promise. Where do you run to in the storm of life? Where is it that you run to in the storms of life? God has made a promise. He's made a vow. He's, he's, he's given us His book. Do we run here? Do we run here? Do we run here? Let's carry on. I want you to notice in verses 12 through 23 this unbelievable faithfulness. It baffles me that there are supposed scholars out there of this book that approach this book with the presuppositions of there is no God there cannot be miracles. 
Like, I don't know why you'd waste your time reading this book if you come to it with, those in, with, that, with that basic framework. But there are. And, and it's, it's those scholars that look at verses 12 to 23, and they go, there's no way that that was written at the same time as the rest of the chapter. Which is fascinating. So it had to be added later. And the reason they think it's unbelievable is because there is no one in the ancient Near East who had such power who would just simply make such a covenant with somebody who was one of their servants. Everything we read in history, if there was a threat to the throne, that threat had to be crushed. We see that in in our world today. We don't like that competition, so we're going to crush it. Well, I think they're on to something, these scholars. It is unbelievable, but it speaks to the main character in Jonathan's script, in his, his speech here, is none other than the Lord, Yahweh, the one who has revealed himself to the people of Israel. Jonathan is the same man in chapter 14. He looks at his armor bearer and says, you know what, let's go into the army, into the camp of the army. It's just you and me, and I know they're like the sand of the seashore, but you know what? Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. You know, we're sheep. We're sent into the army. We're sent into the world. And God is still doing that kind of work. Yet Jonathan's unique. Because Jonathan has this incredible faith in what God has said. Jonathan would have remembered what God had said to his father Saul, that his kingdom was going to be torn away from him. Jonathan was a man of faith. If the kingdom was going to be torn away from Saul and it was going to be passed on to someone better than him, the scriptures tell us, and then in two chapters later, here comes David conquering Goliath, it becomes pretty apparent that this is the one. And so in chapter 18, after chapter 17 of Goliath, where the story of Goliath, he's taken off his robe and saying, here you go, you're the king. Jonathan has great faith in God. He's, 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 he's running to God's kingdom. He believes in God's kingdom, not his kingdom. You have this unbelievable faithfulness of Jonathan. So not only does he promise, yeah, I will go along with your, 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 your plan, David, but I, but, but I want to press you, David. Look at what he says in verse 13. But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. He said, may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. As he's been with my father, the king, may he be with you, the king. 
Verse 14, if I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord. Not just steadfast love. Don't just show me good love, but show me the, what we sung about. Amazing grace. Show me that kind of love. A love that took His people out of the promised land. I mean, out of the, out of the, 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 into the promised land. Out of Egypt. Out of slavery. I'm still alive. Show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. He says, David, when, all, when God has destroyed all your enemies, when, when Yahweh has destroyed all your enemies, don't cut off your love from my family. In 2 Samuel chapter 9, we're going to see David keeping that promise. But Jonathan, long before it ever happened, he saw with faith what, was, what God was about to do. That's why he made a covenant with this David. Unbelievable faithfulness because of this unbelievable God that he had faith in. In what does our faith rest? In whom does our faith rest? That was the promise appealed to, both by David and by Jonathan. But then in verses 24 through 42, you've got this promise applied. And I want you to notice in this the costly love, and, and I want you to notice a peaceful storm. Verses 24 to 34, this costly love. So David hides himself. Jonathan goes back to the feast, or goes to the feast. This new moon feast, uh, we don't know a whole lot about it, but in Numbers chapter 10, there seems to be that on, on, the, on the beginning of the month, they would blow the horn and there'd be a gathering of people and it'd be a festi festivity. Why Saul had three days, we're not sure. Maybe Saul, being so committed to rituals, wanted to make sure he was all right. I don't know. David's hiding. Jonathan goes back to Saul. David's seat is empty. Saul's thinking, ah, David must be unclean. He'll be here tomorrow. David doesn't show up tomorrow. Saul speaks. Jonathan answers. We read it. You heard it. Then verse 30. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. I don't think the English captures what Saul actually said. What Saul said to him was disgusting. And, and I want you to notice, I think what Saul is saying to his son is, as David used wisdom to try to convince Jonathan that the threat was real, I think Saul's trying to use his worldly wisdom to try to convince Jonathan to stay on his side. And did you notice he tries to shame him first? In, in, in so many cultures in our world, shame is, 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 is used in, in such perverse ways. It's becoming increasing in our culture. 
Nobody wants to be disliked on Facebook. Nobody wants to say something on Facebook that will cause shame. Saul's using that same kind of language. He's, he's, He's just trying to shame his son. Throws his wife under the bus as well. And when that doesn't seem to work, in verse 31, he appeals to his greed. He says, For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. And did you notice Saul can't even say the name David? He has to say the son of Jesse, that, that, that one from that low-life family over there. But what's interesting is, remember where Saul came from? Jonathan, to his credit, keeps the promise and pleads with his father. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? And it worked in chapter 19. In chapter 20, it doesn't work anymore. For Saul picks up that spear that he used to aim at David, and this time he aims it at Jonathan. But he was still aiming it at David. Isn't that what Jesus says? They come after us is because of the one we worship. It's him that they despise. And to Jonathan's credit, he got up and he was angry. And notice verse 34 strong, it's powerful. He was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. His father disgraced Jonathan, disgraced his mom. But Jonathan was grieved because he had disgraced the king to be. Does it trouble us when the world and our friends and our neighbors disgrace our king? Does it trouble us when when somebody says something horrible, mean, about somebody else in the the family of God who bears the image of Christ? Are we grieved like Jonathan for our king? Are we grieved because he disgraced him? Understand what Jonathan does here. He's walking away from from, from his family. He's walking away from his community. And he's identifying himself with David. And that's what Christ calls us to. It's exactly what Christ calls us to. Am I first a Seneca? Or am I first a child of the king? Which is it? Am I first a Canadian? A Calgarian? An Albertan? I got my boots on? Or are a child of the king? And and when and when the king says this and and the world or my family says this, where do I land? 
Jonathan Jonathan's a good example. Let's close with verses 35 to 42. A peaceful storm. As you read the text, don't miss the emotion. Don't read this as a dead book. Did you see the tears? Did you hear the 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 the, the the urgency in Jonathan's word in verse 38. Hurry, be quick, do not stay. In other words, get out of here, David. I know he was talking to the boy, but he was really talking to David. David weeping the most in verse 41. Jonathan and David, according to the text, will see each other one more time, but that's going to be very brief. Basically, this is the end of fight the friendship. There's sorrow here. And yet, Jonathan says something very strange. Verse 42, go in peace. I could just see David going, hold it, hold it, hold it. Your dad's trying to kill me. What do you mean, go in peace? But remember the covenant? Remember the promise? Remember the steadfast love? Remember the commitment? Remember that this was a, a, a covenant from the Lord? A, a covenant of the Lord? This was a steadfast love of the Lord? And Jonathan's not sending them out with just his promise. And Jonathan is sending David out. Reminding him of what God had promised David. And yes, there was going to be turmoil. In fact, the next several chapters is nothing but a lot of pain for David. This is why he can go out in peace. The Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, because we've been declared righteous because of faith, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through Him, we have, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace into which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Here's this picture of peace, this picture of rejoicing, this picture of walking into this glorious place. But look at verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We can have peace in the storm. A number of years ago, I had the privilege to baptize an elderly gentleman who grew up in Quebec. 
made his way to Alberta as a young man. Really rough family, rough life. We had the privilege to meet some of his friends and, and, and in, in a season of difficulty of that family, this gentleman came to know Christ. He struggled to read. He struggled in a lot of ways just simply to exist. And when he came to me and says, All right, I'd like to get baptized. I said, well, can I come to your home and can we talk about this? I remember coming into his place. He, he um, right here in this, in this province of ours, he had, a, he had a, a, a little cistern out back where he would dip the water to bring so he could make me some coffee. Uh, it was a one-room shack. It probably shouldn't have been okay to live in. And um, we sat down and kind of concern of what was going to be in my cup and theologically rich he was not I said I won't mention his name just in case I said why do you want to get baptized and he explained what had happened and what he saw and, 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 and how he understood of this Jesus and then he said something to me he said he said, he says, I have this peace now. And he says, not peace out here. Not out here. And he had just been telling me his life story. There was nothing peaceful about his life. He says, but it's just a peace. Because he'd been justified declared righteous by faith in the one who gave his life. Peace in the midst of his storm. Peace. David is sent off. Peace. Because of the promises, the covenant Every Sunday we close around the table and we do that on purpose because sometimes your preacher doesn't get to the gospel. But as we gather around the table, we're not only reminded of the gospel that Jesus Christ died for our sins while we were yet His enemies, that His blood was shed so that we might have forgiveness of sins. We remember this and we stop to say thank you, but we look forward and this speaks to us and reminds us of the gospel and reminds us of the promise of the future. That someday we will have a supper around the king's table as a family. So if you're a follower of Christ, I invite you to come. Don't come alone. We'll gather around the table. We'll take some of the bread, dip it into the cup, and just, just remember what he has done. Megan.